You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London with McKinsey Publishing. Today we're going to be talking about Agile, with a capital A, which started as a set of principles and practices for developing software, but is now being applied in many other areas of business. It's a world of scrums, stories, epics, time box iterations. These are concepts that are spreading well beyond the world of software. To help make sense of it all, we're joined today by Hugo Sarazan. Hugo is a McKinsey partner based here in Silicon Valley, and also Belkis Vasquez-McCall, who's a partner based in New Jersey. So uh, Hugo and Belkis, thanks very much for joining. It's our pleasure. My pleasure to be on. So uh, if you don't mind, let's start with a little bit of history. Uh, I think that will help orient us a little bit. Uh, Hugo, just where did, uh, where and when did Agile emerge? Software has been improving over many, many, many years. Uh, there's uh, multiple versions, and Agile is just the latest one. Before that, there was extreme programming, etc. And there will be new versions that go beyond the current version of Agile. I think it's part of the normal evolution. The current version of Agile can be most people will, will date it back to 2001 when the Agile Manifesto was put together by a group of experts and colleagues who were looking for better ways to deliver software, were frustrated with the inability to do things on time, on budget, and to delight customers, and wanted to see if there was a different way to think about the overall process and think of it in a system way. And then they, they built on the great stuff that was done before and came up with a couple of principles, and we'll, we'll cover some of them in a little while. And then these principles are helping us uh, think very, very differently about how to deliver terrific products. If you take the most purest meaning of Agile, which is how I always explain it to my children, Agile is about being able to move quickly and easily. And if you think about the fundamental principles of the Agile Manifesto, the core is that ability for speed and efficiency. And when you think about when the Agile Manifesto was signed in 2001, it was a plea from the practitioners to shift how software development was built to focus on the customers. Do you just want to say a couple of words about Waterfall? Because as I understand it, and for people who are, who are not steeped in software development methodology, part of what Agile is reacting against is, is what was known as the Waterfall, the classic Waterfall methodology for developing big software products. Um, Belkis, just say a couple of words about waterfall on how it works and also what the problems were with it. The whole reason I fell in love with Agile was after I completed my first waterfall project and it was a disaster and I was in desperate need of finding a new way of working. When you think about waterfall, it's based on a command and control approach, pretty much telling your team members what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and it has a very linear and sequential software development approach. It's not that Waterfall is bad. Actually, Waterfall is a perfectly fine way of doing things, and there were good reasons why it emerged when the computer and the mainframes and the cost of doing things and uh, were such um, that it required a lot of advanced planning, a lot of coordination, and a lot of rigidity to make sure that things were done in a way that dependencies were addressed properly up front. The reality is in, in, in today's context, uh, with technology being more flexible, more cheap, you have the ability to think very, very differently about how you bring technology uh, to market. 
And in the old paradigm, it was not uncommon. We all have clients and have colleagues who were part of uh, you know, very large projects that took many, many, many months. We've done lots of benchmarking over the years. And the most recent one, I think we reviewed almost 6,000 IT projects and 33% of them were not on time. 46% of them were over budget and you know, very few of them delivered the original benefit they were expecting to deliver. And that's not an indictment of the IT organization. It's not an indictment of the people who deliver the software. It's not an indictment of Waterfall. It's just, it takes a long time. And to be rigid, it's, you're introducing risk by default. Agile is the opposite. Agile says, let's break things into small little increments. Let's make sure we deliver value each time so that we don't wait until the very end to have the big hoopla and the great unveiling because at every step of the way, you've delivered value. So that's a great segue into um, sort of the principles of, of Agile. Maybe just step back. If I see a team, uh, you know, an organization teams on the ground operate in an Agile way, what do I see happening in practice? I'll highlight a few. And uh, I do think one of the beautiful things about these principles is you need to think of them in a holistic way. You can't just cherry pick a few of them and we can get into why that can lead to really bad outcomes and some companies are doing that today and it's not, they think they do agile, but they really get in trouble. At the core, you need to be putting the customer. You need to be very clear on who's the customer, what problem you're trying to solve, what matters to them and prioritize them and always come back to what is the customer. In some cases, the customer can be the internal customers, but often you need to make sure that it's the external customer. In typical organization, the distance between the customer and the people doing the coding is eight layers of translation. That can only lead to wrong prioritization, compromise, and at the end, your likelihood of delighting the customer and doing something that's ha-ha is reduced. That's principle number one and incredibly important. The second principle that I would add is around how do you focus on people interactions versus process? So how do you make sure that your team members just don't take a project plan on what we need to do and toss it over the wall to the team, but actually collaborate? How do you come together to align on what are the objectives and mission that you have for your customers and work to figure out the best way, the best solution to bring that to life? And it's about making work fun again. Imagine that. Imagine getting your team members to really enjoy what they're doing and, and, and feel like they're accomplishing their mission. And as Hugo mentioned in the first principle, it's about bringing the customer to the table. So as part of the interaction and processes, it's take away so much of the focus on just checking a box to more of the focus of how do we serve our customers and get to the right solutions for our customers. I think a third one, which is very important, is welcome change. I think removing the barriers that if you change, there's failure, that something was wrong, rather uh, to turn it around and say, we've learned something. We're going to integrate that learning into the next iteration. And because at the heart in the way most organizations will implement these, these principles is quick cycle times, two, four weeks, six weeks sprints is you know, often the, the name that is used, and deliver something at the end of the sprint, you have the ability to learn. So if you do a quick sprint, you focus on delivering something, you bring the customer to give you feedback on what you've delivered, 
you have an inspired team. So now we've taken the three principles and we've gotten them to work together. That's one way to implement the principle. It's not the only way, but you can begin to see how it's self-reinforcing. The fourth one I'd say is empower that team. That team knows more about the customer, knows more what the team can do. And if you make it autonomous, within some boundaries, you can have something really, really special. The team performs at a new level and the quality of the product uh, goes up. Now, it's scary for most organizations to let go. And we, are, we have built, since the Sloan days, organizations that are hierarchical, inspired from the military. Everything needs to flow up all the way to the top to people that have been promoted based on past behavior and successes that supposedly know more. Well, every time you go up and down this chain, you have translation layers and you kind of lose some of the nuances. And now we're saying, no, no, let's flip it around. We're going to let the people who are closest to the problem, closest to the customer, make the trade-off within the scope that we've agreed is the scope that they can operate in. That's what makes it agile. That's what makes it speedy. That's what makes it very flexible. What you just mentioned there, Hugo, around the interaction between agile teams and the rest of the business strikes me as being fundamentally very, very important. Unless the whole business is operating in an agile manner, you've always got this sort of layer of interaction between agile teams and, let's say, I don't know, I don't want to pick on finance, but the, the finance function or control functions that may not be used to this way of operating. Is that something that organizations need to look out for? It is a constant struggle. It's something we see again and again, and, 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 and it is one of the limiting factors to scale agile in organization, which, you know, frankly, doing a pilot and having a team somewhere in a corner operating in agile is interesting and helpful. But scaling that is very hard. And once you try to scale, you bump into the parts of the organization that is not organized in an agile way. And I don't think every part of the organization should be agile, by the way. Some can, and there are some criteria that can be used to identify where agile makes the most sense. And there are parts where it's maybe less appropriate. But when you have a part of the organization that is operating in an agile way, it still has dependencies on the rest of the organization. You highlighted finance, that's a common one, and we can dive into that. You know, HR is another one, procurement is another one, marketing is another one. So there are all these other groups, and if they're working on a, a different cadence, a different quarterly cycle, they're optimizing against different objectives, it, it is a problem. Uh, it's mismatch impedance, to use a technical term, or the gear trains are different. One, one gear is spinning really fast, another one is, is spinning at a different rhythm. I would say that um, it, it sounds like, if you step back, it's about bringing the rest of the organization along with you, with you on the journey. Because I do, I do think, having been on the other side of the table from, from agile teams, immediately they start talking about their epics and their scrums and their burn rate, and to be honest, unless they've educated you about how this works, you have no idea what they're talking about. Absolutely. I love what you said in terms of you have to bring the rest of the organization along because it's not a one-time transformation. It's a journey, and you have to bring every part of the organization along so that you're talking a common language and that you're shifting the way that you operate as a whole. And, for example, one of the organizations that I work for they needed to influence their project management office in terms of how to leverage the new 
artifacts that they were creating in an agile team. And one of those artifacts is called a user story. And a user story in the simplest form is how do you take your requirements, your user experiences, your functionality that you're building for your customer and that you want to deliver to your customers and write them in a form that is based on how the user is going gonna, gonna to leverage them. And they needed to understand how are these user stories aligned with what we typically call requirement, where there were very detailed requirements, and I, we had a sense that if we were going to get audited, we knew where to point our finger at. And just getting them to understand the similarities of the new world, of the user stories, and the requirements took time. But taking that time to align them and bring them along was very effective because then be, they became champions and change agents of the new way of working that we were trying to replicate across the organization. One of the things that I say is that you're going to be as fast as your slowest process. So if you only focus on increasing the speed of your agile teams and ignore the rest of the organization, you're going to hit a point where it's going to create friction and prevent you from going as fast as you can. Sounds like from what you're saying, the whole objective of Agile in some ways is to reduce risk. And the big risk that the business as a whole, and particularly the finance uh, function, doesn't want is the delivery of some multi-million dollar thing that's been produced by a sort of traditional waterfall method that actually, well, not only is it over budget, but it actually doesn't meet requirements that have changed in the two years since they were collected. So, yes, I can see if you reframe it in a way that makes sense to the rest of the business, you see, actually, this is totally coherent and totally aligned with what they're trying to do. But you need to explain it. It is a wonderful de-risker. And imagine I'm gathering requirements. I'm interviewing you, the user, and you tell me, I like these things to be this big, this size, this color, whatever the requirements you decide to use. And it needs to go in X milliseconds. It needs to talk to the following set of other things. And you're, you're at the point, uh, as a user providing that feedback, you have no understanding of the trade-offs you're asking. Zero. You're just asking your wish list. You're at Christmas. You're, you're, you're making your Christmas list. Then if your dialogue is different and says, okay, that's great. Now let me convert that into user stories or epic and things that you would do different, Mr. User. And then I ask you, which one do you care the most about? Which one do you want now? And then I'm going to go build that, and I'm going to get you part of the way. And then I'm going to show it to you, and you tell me, is that what you had in mind? And then I'm going to listen to your feedback, not at the end, not in user acceptance testing 18 months down the road when I'm doing the great unveiling, and you go, holy crap, I had no idea that's what you were building. But when you do it on the first most important thing that you said you wanted, I'm going to maybe fake it, maybe get you 80% of the way or 60% of the way, but you're going to tell me right away if I'm on the right track, I have massively, massively de-risked this project, and I'm making sure you're going to be delighted. I also see many organizations where they will get the input that what they're building is not right, and they continue to invest on it. Just because of the fact that they've already invested X amount of dollars already, they just feel like, I need to bring it to the end. I need to bring it to the finish line, even if it's not valuable. And if it's not working, kill it, sunset it. Focus on the right things that are relevant for your business. I wonder whether we can say a little bit more around this idea that Agile is not a menu of things from which you can cherry pick. 
that it's a, a system. Are there particular things that we see working with clients that they are tempted to leave out, maybe because it's hard, that actually ends up kind of really damaging their adoption of Agile? I personally, every time I see this, and it's not uncommon because now there's a lot of companies that have tried Agile in IT, in engineering, and in other functions, and they're, they're kind of scratching their head. And then the kind of things that are, I typically see that they cherry pick, they do the easy stuff, right? They get a few people, they anoint them scrum masters, but what they don't want to do is they don't want to have autonomous teams. They really don't want to let go. This is really, really hard. And there's like a manager who's been promoted to be the manager who likes to come in and makes big calls because he or she knows what's right. And they forget to appoint the product owner or, or be clear on who's the customer who's making the important trade-off. They don't want to move everybody together because we have dispersed team. The expert is in whatever. He or she is busy doing other things so they can't be full-time on the team. So they kind of do a bunch of these little compromises, which seem like, oh, not a big deal along the way. But at the end, what you have is, you know, a non-empowered team with no clear customer who can represent the customer. And the people uh, are unable to complete the sprint because the subject matter expert, you know, is doing six projects and is not fully dedicated. And then at the end of the sprint, it's kind of a bit of a belly flop. I mean, it's really nothing special and it's not that impressive. And that is a really big problem that we're seeing more and more companies. If you don't take a system view and you don't think about all these components together, you're not going to get the expected outcome. And it's a malpractice because what's going to happen is that Agile is going to surface the inefficiencies that you have within your organization. And as you start to cherry pick and say, I'm going to have a team, but I'm not going to dedicate all the role. Or I'm going to try to do more frequent releases, but after I complete all my requirements for six months, it's gonna, the system is going to break down in terms of the key objectives that you're trying to accomplish. And you're not going to get the benefits that you could get from, from really thinking about the whole system. And the value that you expect from Agile, you're not going to achieve. Or if you assign a product owner that's not an empowered product owner, and they still have to go to 50 different people to be able to make a decision on what experience to deliver to your customer. And these are the things that if you experiment with Agile and start to cherry pick, and then on top of that, you try to scale that approach, which is not truly Agile, is worse than not doing Agile at all because you're confusing the organization with I think I'm Agile, but I'm still following the traditional way of working, and now we're scaling this. I just want to pick up on uh, a piece of terminology used there, which I think you guys will take for granted, but not everybody in the audience will, will know. Who is the product owner in all of this, and what is the role of the product owner? Elkis, do you want to take that? Yes, a product owner is a critical role, and there is a debate in the industry around who plays the role, what is it, and for me, I see it as a linchpin role because it's the core for these agile teams. And there's a couple of things to highlight. One is a person that represents the customers. They understand their customers. They set the vision for their customer. They dream about their customer experience and the functionality that they want to deliver to them. They help to drive the team towards the vision that they have and encourages them as they go along. Second, the product owner has what I call organizational capital. 
they're able to influence the organization and bring them along in, on their vision of where they want to go. So as they're thinking about what do they need to deliver in terms of functionality, they start to pull in the marketing team. How do you, how do you start to share my vision? The compliance team, how do we start to build a vision together? So they start to rally the troops on the vision that they have for their customers. The third one is it is a leadership role. They, they help to guide the team and there are the leaders for how to make sure that we're exciting our team members and they're actually rallying around the vision that they have. Because you don't put the efforts that you need in terms of getting the right person for the role, it ends up being a waterfall team. Because you'll the person that you assign will just continue in their traditional way of thinking and guide the team in, in that direction. And many times where I tell product owners is that they need to work in three different worlds. And I know because I've lived it, I've been a product owner before, they have to live in the present because they need to make sure they work with their teams and they're focusing on what's this user story that they're working on. They need to work in the past so any functionality was already built and how do they start to validate that with either the rest of their stakeholders or the customers themselves. And they need to live in the future because they need to be thinking about what are the next set of capabilities that I need to be including in my products? What are some of the user patterns that I'm seeing that should influence my future roadmap? In a very practical sense, should the product owner come from the technology organization? Should the product owner actually come from the marketing organization, who I think in a lot of companies would assert that they sort of are closest to the customer and, and have most insight? Or frankly, does it not matter? Is it more about the individual and having the right mindset and, as you say, the organizational capital to get the right to have that autonomy? So the answer is, it depends. Um, it, there are individuals that are fantastic at bridging and playing in these three worlds in any organization. On balance, most of these typically come from the business because they have that organizational credibility, they have that understanding of the customer. But if they are not able to have the credibility with the engineering team and the technical team, and if they are not curious to kind of want to go into the details of understanding that, they're not going to be successful. So you do need that special blend of skill. And what you also need is good leadership. At the end of the day, the, the PO, the product owner, uh, one of their main roles, I mean, you know, she needs to protect the team. One of the main benefits, the reason the, the team is agile, there's all sorts of reasons, but one of the main reasons is you have dedicated people that are not being interrupted by others. So what you need is a PO that can come in and shield the team from all this wonderful attention well intended from different stakeholders around the firm, managers, cross-functional teams, etc. The PO needs to run interference because if the team can run uninterrupted in a focused way and to deliver what has been agreed at the beginning is the backlog of stuff for that sprint and doesn't allow anybody to change that backlog during that sprint, shockingly, the team will deliver. One of the interesting implications of that is that there needs to be somebody within the business who can dedicate themselves full time to this and has the right skills. And I think the interesting question is, you know, most business teams are running pretty lean themselves. Do they need to create a role that is dedicated to this and bring somebody in with the right skill sets? Because it's pretty hard for people just to drop everything and focus on this one product. No, so this is where it gets really interesting. This is why this is a, it ends up in, in the end being uh, pretty transformative. And that's why you can't compromise 
uh, on some criteria. You need to be willing to make a choice that this is important and therefore this team member, he or she, has to dedicate her time to this. And that is counter to everything we do in large organization. Large organization, the power structure gets defined in how many fingers you can put in everybody else's project. How many emails are you CC'd on? And there's enough research that demonstrates that fragmentation, and God for, you know, with technology, we have more fragmentation now than ever. We are reducing productivity of everybody. And agile teams are dedicated teams. They have a single purpose, a clear objective, a protector, a PO who guides and shepherds the team along, and these guys and gals work together on the single objective. And that's, if you're not willing to go there and you're not willing to make the trade-offs and the choices and say, this is a project that is so important that I'm gonna free up everything else, don't do it, it's not gonna work. So sadly, that's all we have time for today. But Hugo, Belkis, uh, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Agile is not going away. It's going to be fun to center for many years. So I'm excited to be talking about it. Excellent. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you want to learn more about McKinsey's work on Agile and related topics, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.